my wife Jess and I have been married for, it'll be 19 years this May, uh, and thank you, thank you, Alan. I, that always gets, exactly, it always gets applause like it's, it's some kind of, yeah, I got married at 12, right. Uh, we've, we've been together more or less since I was in eighth grade. Uh, or seventh grade. I went to her eighth grade graduation. She's a little bit older than me. Uh, And in that time, we have weathered uh, storms, uh, and we have celebrated great victories in our relationship and and in our lives and friendships with others. But I'd be lying to you if I told you that our relationship hasn't changed or or morphed or transformed in some way over all that time. In in the 25 years that I've known Jess... uh, and we've been in a relationship, I've I've come to understand her a bit more. I've come to appreciate things about her that I didn't know uh, originally when we first got together. There have been confusing things that I've had to figure out, and I don't say that in a derogatory way towards my wife. It's like anyone. Like, there's things about him you just have to figure out and and how to, to, to work with. And uh, but I've also found things of, of beauty in her that have only come over knowing her for a long time and coming to appreciate her in a new way. And but one of the main things about, about being together with someone for the long haul is that we've had to move past our initial experience, our initial relationship, that we had to move past some of these, these expectations that we had and the things that we thought were going to be a certain way, and we had to move past the idea of, of being in love with love, being in love with the idea of a relationship and actually move into being in love with the person that you have chosen to be with and move into a true depth of relationship and, and loving the person for who they really are. And, and not just the feelings that we get from them, not just feelings I get from Jess, but actually loving her for who she is. And so I would say that the same thing is true of, of our relationship with God, that, that we bring expectations to the relationship. We think things should be a certain way. Uh, what a relationship with God should be like, but, but do we actually know God? Do we actually know this God that we are pursuing or trying to please or we would say that we're in a relationship with? And so uh, over the next few months leading up to Easter, my, my plan is to spend time looking at the person and the character of God. And for many of us, I would venture to say that we probably have a picture or some kind of personification of God in our minds and our hearts based on past experiences, things we've read, things we've heard from parents, friends, religious leaders, and so forth. And in my experience, I found that most people have unconsciously formed a picture of God in their mind a long time ago, and it hasn't really changed all that much. Or or I found that some people stopped trying to figure God out a long time ago based on an experience, sometimes negative and sometimes positive. Deep down, there's some pain that has stunted their inquiry into the person of God, and and he's seen from a distance, he's kept at at an arm's length due to a lack of trust. Or some folks have had a good experience with God, and they came to God in in hope and in faith, but never moved beyond that, and just said, okay, God's good, great. And they never moved beyond that into a depth of relationship and moved into maturity. Or worse, I found that some people, due to self-righteousness, think they've got God all figured out theologically, uh, relationally. They've got them all figured out. They know who he is, and they put him in a box, and they say, this is how God is. He's only like this. And they actually lose some of their reverence for God. So my hope over the next few months is that, is that we can journey together to get a clearer picture of God, 
to kindle a flame in your heart and your mind that, that may have gone out a long time ago, or maybe for the first time, light a fire in you to desire a relationship with the true God that we worship here, or maybe to allow God to move a little bit closer than arm's length, allow him to, to come a little bit closer to you, to, to trust him a little bit. And here's the thing, though. I don't think we're going to answer all of your questions, nor do I want to. I think part of enjoying the person of God is actually enjoying some of the mystery of God, some of the mystery of a relationship that you move deeper into and appreciate more and more as you go. My hope is that we will learn to trust the person of God rather than just trying to figure out everything about God and try to put God in some kind of category or box. Because the truth is, a God that you can have control over and you've got everything figured out for isn't really a God. So there is a little bit of mystery of God that I appreciate and hope we can appreciate as well. So what is God like? What does he look like? What are his attributes, his, his character? How does he behave? How does he act? Um, these might seem like strange questions, like what does God look like? How does God act? But the truth is, I can say with pretty close to 100% certainty that, that if you're here today or you know, maybe listening to this later, that you've got something in your mind about what God is like. Something in your mind about what God looks like and what, what his personality is like, what he acts like. Do you, do you think God is controlling? Do you think God is a taskmaster? Do you think God is out to get you? Do you think God punishes or rewards certain behaviors or actions? Is God joyful? Is God caring or is he dismissive or aloof? Is God near? Is he far? Is he involved? Is he approachable? Does God care about you and me? So like I said, I, I, I feel pretty much with 100% certainty that, that you are here or listening to this talk because of some way that you feel about God. And I'd go further to say that what you think about God is actually influencing how you are going about your life, what you strive for, what you fear what you find joy in, how you treat others, how you, how you have self-worth or you don't have self-worth. And I say this regularly, that, that, that what you believe actually leads to behavior. What you believe in your heart of hearts and in your mind actually leads to actions, beha- or belief leads to behavior. So for instance, you might think that you, you want to retire someday, and to do so is going to require, I, I don't even know, I'm not smart when it comes to finances, a million dollars in the bank. Right? Is that a good enough of sum? See, you believe you want to retire someday, you need to have a million dollars in the bank. You believe this, so it leads you to behavior. You work towards this. You put effort into making this money to sock it away, to have it into some kind of thing that will pay dividends someday. So you behave in this way to make it happen. Or, or maybe you believe that, that happiness will be found in, in some kind of thing, whether it's in a new car or clothing or the way you look or the house or whatever, some kind of material thing, right? And so you behave in such a way to get that, right? So now at a deeper emotional level, you may believe that there is, or a deeper spiritual level, I guess, you might believe that there is an afterlife and that good people get to go there. So you try and behave in such a way that you achieve that. So you get there, or you might believe that whatever God or gods are out there, help those who are good, sort of this idea of karma. If I do good things, good things will happen to me. So you behave in such a way, you try to exhibit these good behaviors so that whatever these gods are will do good things for you. Or, or maybe you don't believe that God is good at all, 
whatever gods are out there, or the God that we believe in, you don't believe that he's actually good because of some pain in your life, something that caused you to, to not trust God. So you behave in such a way that you try to control your life and keep yourself safe because God can't be trusted. All that to say that, that you're sitting here today or listening to this because you believe that, that this is the right thing to do. For some reason, you believe this or the person that dragged you here believes that this is the right thing for you to do in your life. Do you see it? Like what, what you believe influences how you behave, how you act, the things you do and what you prioritize with your life. So what you think about God, whether consciously or subconsciously, affects your behavior and your life. Uh, A.W. Tozer, who's a, a famous author, maybe you've read some of his books or uh, you've heard him before, he's a famous preacher. He's actually from our family of churches, the Christian Missionary Alliance. And, and he once said that, that what you think about God... Like, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. What you think about God is the most important thing about your life for the reasons that I've said. I agree with him because what I think about God has a direct influence on my life, right? So, not so I can be some super religious, like, monastic, spiritual character, but in, in really, really practical ways. I believe that, that God is wise, Okay, I believe that God is all-knowing and that he is wise. And I believe that God is loving. I believe that God is loving and he is for me. So if God is all-wise and loving towards me, it means that when I enter into a situation that I can't figure out, that I don't know what's going on, some crazy stressful situation, I can remember that there is a God who loves me and knows what's going on. And it influences how I move about through that situation, believing that God is for me and will figure the situation out. Or... Uh, Jess and I know a woman who, who really believes that God is generous, that God, everything he, everything he owns is his, everything in the world is his, and he's generous towards her, so she in turn is generous towards the world around her, generous towards people in need and wanting to bless people. I know another guy that believes that, that God is very gracious and very forgiving, and, and forgiving towards him and forgiving towards others around him, so that when it comes to raising his kids, he says that grace is a better teacher than law. And what he believes about God directly influences how he parents. It starts to come out in the, way, the ways that he parents. So, I mean, do you see it? What you believe about God affects your daily life, whether you realize it or not. So what do you think about God? Are you fond of God? Are you afraid of God? Is God trustworthy? Is he mean? Is he powerful? Is he approachable? Is God standoffish? So our, our spiritual ancestors, the Israelites, wrestled through these same thoughts and feelings. They vacillated back and forth about, sometimes quickly even, about what they thought about God, whether sometimes they would trust him and put all their faith in him, and at other times they would want to draw near to him, and other times they wouldn't trust him at all, and they, and they would start making gods out of stone and metal that they could worship and they could control. Sometimes they worshiped God and believed him to be beautiful, other times they acted with disdain towards God and said, we're going to go about our lives the way that we want. Sometimes they felt cared for by a loving father, and other times they felt in the dark. They felt scared. They felt alone. Just read the Psalms, kind of like right in the middle of your Bible if you have one. Just read the Psalms and look at, at how this, the authors there are going through this mystery of trying to figure out God. Is God for me? Where are you, God? And God, you do love me. God, I can't figure you out. It's this, this constant wading through the mystery of God. And this, this wrestling with what God was like continued with the people of God right up through 
the first century A.D. We see the people of God finding God shrouded in, in, in mystery and in reverence, and they find God to be somewhat distant during this time, and because of their Roman oppression, they feel like God doesn't care about them anymore, and they're saying, God, where are you? And there was a belief that, that they needed a Messiah. They needed someone to come who would, who would come into their midst and save them and bring God's presence to them so that they would finally know God in his fullness, so that they would finally see God. And here's what they also thought, that when God would come through this Messiah, he would reward the good and he'd punish the bad. He would set up a kingdom for the people of Israel and they would be rewarded and the Gentiles, the Romans, would be left outside of it. You can see that their belief, what they believed about God being vindictive, would bear fruit for them. It started to influence their behavior. So when Jesus comes on the scene into this people of God in the first century, and he's doing all sorts of miracles, and he's telling people he has this special connection with God the Father, he's, he's being pretty clear about this, that his disciples were more than a little bit excited that the moment was finally here, that, that Jesus was going to reveal God the Father to the people. They would finally get to know him in his fullness. He'd set up a kingdom for them, and everything would great. It'd be great. They would finally understand God in all his glory. They'd finally get to go back to the days of old when David and, and Solomon got to see God's glory in the tabernacle and in the temple. But instead of fulfilling their wishes, instead of setting up this kingdom for them, during the Last Supper, during the Passover in John 13, Jesus tells them, actually, I'm going to be betrayed. This thing that you thought I was going to do in bringing God's presence to you, actually, I'm going to be betrayed. Judas is, he indicates that Judas is going to be the one to do this, and I'm going to be killed. But here's what's interesting. In all of that, he says that somehow, in the midst of this betrayal and is being handed over to the authorities, and he indicates that he's going to die, in the midst of all that, he says, this is actually going to glorify God. This is going to glorify me, the Son, and it's going to glorify the Father. Somehow something good is going to, going to come out of this. Jesus is telling us something about God, I believe, the Father, that, that humanity's cruel murder of Jesus shows us something about Him and about the character of God. I want to read something with you uh, coming out of that Passover scene. If you have a Bible, you can turn to John 14. Uh, I read from the New International Version. It's the NIV for short. So if you're looking on your phones, you can look at the NIV. If not, there's a couple Bibles on the back back there. Those are yours for keeping if you want them. So John is writing here in John 14. He's, he's recalling everything that Jesus said coming out of this Last Supper moment where he said he's going to be betrayed and crucified and somehow this is going to lead to God being glorified. He says this in chapter 14, verse 1. So obviously the disciples are dismayed about this. They're waiting for God's presence to come. And, and Jesus says this, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Or another version would say, You trust in God, trust also in me, Jesus says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place to where I am going. And Thomas, uh, one of my favorite disciples, says, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. 
Now listen to this. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father. Show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. Understand what's happening here. Jesus is telling them, I'm going somewhere, and you know how to get there. And Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. What? Like, how would we know how to get there? We don't even know where you're going. And Jesus says, I'm the way to get there. And this is what's beautiful to me about this. The somewhere that he's going is actually a person. He's going to the Father. This is what our inheritance is. This is what he's telling them eternal life and full life looks like. It's going to a person, not just a place, but going to a person. And he says, I'm going to the Father. No one gets to the Father but through me, he says. And the truth is, if you really did know me, you would already know the Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip probably saying what most of us would have said in that situation, Jesus, why don't you just show us the Father? Like, just, like right now, just show us the Father, and then we'll believe. Then we'll follow. Like, then we'll really actually trust you. Ever felt like that? Like, yeah, God, if you would just show yourself to me, I, then I would really believe you. That, I, trust me, I, I'm there. Like, I get it. I, I feel the same thing. But here's the thing, friends. If you follow even just the history of, of Israel, let alone everyone that's come since then, that have seen God do miraculous things, if you, if you follow Israel, you see that God frees them from Egypt through these incredible, like, crazy plagues that come on Egypt. He leads them through the Red Sea that parts around them. He sends down a cloud of, of smoke, a cloud of fire, and is protecting them and guiding them. Moses goes up on a mountain, God's presence come down, the, the, the mountain is thundering and it's shaking. Meanwhile, while that's happening, the people are like, yeah, we're going to go make a golden cow. Like, they've seen all of that, and they're like, we're going to go make this thing that we can worship and we can control. We, this is how sick and twisted our human hearts are. We so desperately want a God with all the mystery and the doubt removed so that we can control him, so that we can simply get the results that we want. But what Jesus says to Philip is astounding and encouraging to me. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Don't you know me? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen God, has seen the Father. He's saying, if you want to see God, look to me. If you want to know the way to fullness of life in God, look to me. If you want to know what God is like, look to me. If you want to know the way to be with God, look to me. If you want a picture of God, look at me. And he says, sure, you can look at the miracles as proof, but if you really want to know God, look at who I am, Jesus is saying. Two summers ago, my family and I took a trip to Northern California and it was a trip that we had been saving for and planning on for a long time. And we went to visit 
uh, kind of three different sets of friends. And <clears throat> we flew into to Oakland and then drove north, and we went up to Santa Rosa, which if you know where any of these fires were, it was kind of nearby where our friends were, and they owned this camp. It's actually a, a, a denominational camp there, Alliance Redwoods. And we went and stayed at this camp. And if you've never seen Redwoods in person, like, it's mind-blowing how big these trees are. Perfectly straight, huge, incredible. And, like, it was just mind-blowing to be in this camp, and the fog would roll, and it was just beautiful. So we stayed there for a couple of days, and then we drove south down the coast, and we went to, I think it was called Point Reyes National Beach or something, I forget. And it's this beach where you walk along, and you're on this cliff, and there's all this, like, grassy, like, meadow kind of thing. And, and on the left is the ocean, hundreds of feet below you, and on the right, there's a herd of elk. Like, this didn't belong in my mind. Like, these things shouldn't have gone together, but this is what Northern California was like. It was beautiful. That's why when we went there, my sister-in-law said, you have to come back. You're going to want to live there, but you're going to have to come back. It's a beautiful place. So we continued down the coast, and then we went to Santa Clara, where we met up with uh, one of my good friends from childhood, and we were going to drive east, across California, through kind of agricultural country, into uh, the Sierra Nevada mountains. And we're standing looking over this map because he's old school, like why GPS anything? We're actually standing over a map on the, on the floor looking at it. And I noticed that our route is going to bring us through Yosemite. I had no idea that this was coming. Like I didn't know we were going to go to Yosemite. He told me he didn't want to go there because of all the tourists out of there. But he says, I think we should go through there. Now, I had an idea in my mind of what this would look like. Like I had an idea of what Bridal Veil Falls would look like when we pulled into the park. But seeing it in person took my breath away. It was unbelievable. Or when we continued around through the park and we got to Half Dome, like, I cried. Like, this is, this is the effect that it had on me to see it in person after so long of wanting to see the glory and the splendor of this park. And, and it was just mind-blowing. And there's, there's so much more of the park to experience. I, I want to go back and, and visit again and again. It was just incredible. But it was actually somewhat surreal too. It was just crazy, but I got to see them with my own eyes. I don't have to guess anymore what they look like. I've seen them and understood them a little bit more, and I don't have to dream anymore about going there. I've actually seen them with my own eyes. Friends, to get a clearer picture, a more realistic picture of who God is, we only need to look to Jesus. Any notion we have about who God is positive or negative, any, any doubts we have, any distrust we have, any pain we have, any positive thing that happened years ago, any confusion, it should all be seen through the lens of Jesus. He is our clearest picture of who God is. Now, that doesn't mean, okay, everything's just going to be clear now. No more questions like it's all figured out. But I think we start to move beyond the why questions, and we start to really believe the who of the situation. We start to believe in the relationship that we have with God when we look to him through Jesus. And in the same way that this grandiose experience of Yosemite couldn't be experienced in one drive, like one trip through, we need to return again and again and again to the person of Jesus to see more and more of the beauty of God, more and more of the mystery of God, more and more in the character and the personality of God. We need to keep going back again and again and again. John, the the apostle who we read from earlier, opens his account of Jesus' life, his gospel, his his story of Jesus' life, 
by stating what he finally realized to be true. And he says the same thing in in 1 John 1. He says that the divine thought, the divine wisdom, the divine inspiration, the divine light and life actually became flesh and dwelled among us. And I don't believe it was any mistake. Actually, I, I believe it was pretty intentional that he chose the wording that he did. He's the only one that opens his gospel in this way. He says, the word became flesh. He wrote it in Greek, but the word there, this idea of the word, the proclamation of God, the power, the authority of God, is actually goes back to Hebrew, a, a language that he would have known from, from being uh, raised in this way, it was this idea of this word memra, which appears all over the Old Testament because they didn't want to use the name God. They would use this, the word of God showed up and said this to Pharaoh. The word of God did this among the people. The word of God, it's the power and the authority of God. He's saying the power and authority of God became flesh and it dwelled among us. And the word there that he uses for dwelled is actually tabernacled, which again goes back to an Old Testament Hebrew word, which if you've grown up in like a Pentecostal church or more experiential church, there's a word there called Shekinah glory. Like he's saying that this Hebrew word, this glory of God showed up and dwelled among us. What happened in the temple, what happened in the tabernacle now dwelled among us in flesh. He's saying God's thought God's wisdom, God's power, his glory showed up and dwelled among us, and it was Jesus. In 1 John, he says, we saw it, we touched it, and this we proclaim to you. Paul, the, the famous missionary and pastor of the early church, wrote a letter to uh, the churches in Colossae, and in, in, in Colossians 1.15, he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What you can't see has become visible in Jesus. And he goes on to say he holds everything together. Everything was created by him, for him, through him. And then in verse 19, he says, God was pleased to have all his fullness, everything that created the universe and holds it together. He was willing to have all of that, all his fullness dwell in Jesus. All of it comes to bear in the person of Jesus. He's the image, the imprint, the picture of God for all to see. And not just some half version, some micro version of God, like the fullness of God dwelling in Jesus. And then in in one of my favorite books, one of the most beautiful passages in Hebrews 1, it's a whole letter written about kind of the supremacy of Jesus. The author says this to open the letter. In Hebrews 1, right at the beginning, he says, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Friends, we hear it again and again and again through the New Testament that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. I'm going to paraphrase this, okay, just a little bit. Give me some liberty here for those of you who are theologians. Just give me a pass here. Hebrews 1 is saying, in the past, God spoke through our forefathers, through the prophets, and now he has spoken extremely clearly and in an unveiled way through Jesus. Now put ourselves in these shoes. You may have heard others speak for God or put some words in his mouth that didn't belong there, but God has spoken through Jesus declaratively. You may have had someone paint a picture for you that characterized God in a way that is inaccurate, but now Jesus is the picture of God that we should see. 
And you may be stuck in the past with God because of legit painful things that have happened in your life. But Jesus is the present and the future of God for you. Someone else may have misrepresented God. Some religious leader might have done something or said something that they shouldn't have about God. But Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. God's glory radiates from Jesus, like light shining through a prism that refracts into all these different shades and different colors in every direction. Jesus brings color into our searching hearts and into our world. When we look at him one way, we see compassion. When we look at him another way, we see mercy. We look at him in some ways, we see strong justice. We look at him another way, we see his altogether separateness, his totally, his holiness that's so different than our humanity. And in other ways, we see his meekness and his humanity, and his tenderness. We see his justice, and on and on and on. And what our spiritual ancestors are telling us in these New Testament letters is that in all of these, we see the true nature of God. God's image, God's glory, God's thoughts, God's directives, all seen in Jesus. So today, I'm inviting you to journey with us in this over the next couple months. As we shine a light onto the life of Jesus to get a clearer picture of God, to see the glory of God revealed in him in all its different ways. My prayer is that we will come away with a deeper appreciation for who God is and we'll trust him more as a God who loves us, who is for us, who is pursuing us, who is compassionate, is just and holy and meek and forgiving and on and on. And through forming a a more informed and passionate uh, belief and faith in the person of God, we will move into gospel-motivated behaviors, gospel-motivated obedience. So what we believe starts to lead into behaviors that lead to more and more full life. And so, like any relationship, I'll admit that we don't know everything there is to know. And I have no way to unveil all of that for you. I, I just don't have it. We're all in this together of understanding the mystery of God. But I'm asking you to embrace the relationship with God the Father as a mystery, as a journey, as a continuing revelation of more and more of God's character through the person of Jesus that we get to read about in the Gospels. Right now, I'm going to ask Keith to come up and uh, just play a little bit. Here's what I want to do. All of us, like I said early on, all of us have some conception of God in our minds. What I want to do is ask a couple of questions and give you a few minutes. It won't be dead silent. Don't worry. Keith can play some music. But I want to give you a few minutes to pray, to consider, to think about who you think God is, how you view God. So I'm going to ask you these three questions, and then I'm going to say them as we're sitting here. Do you find God to be trustworthy? Do you find God to be trustworthy? Do you think God understands the reality of your life? Do you think God actually knows your life, like what you're going through, where you're at? And finally, do you think God is loving? Do you really believe that God is loving? Just go ahead and contemplate that for a couple minutes.
Do you think God is trustworthy? Why or why not? Do you think God sees you and knows the reality of your life? And do you see God as loving and for you? I'm going to ask that you would just bow your heads or close your eyes. And I'm asking you whether you, whether you come back here for talks to worship with us or whether you never come back, I would ask you to not stop considering who God is in the person of Jesus that we get to see God in all his glory, in all his fullness in the person of Jesus. Now, if you want, if you're comfortable with this, I'd ask you to kind of open your hands like you're holding a plate. Kind of open-handed saying to God, I'm willing for you to paint a new picture. I'm willing for you to, to rekindle my relationship with you. I'm willing to start a new relationship with you. Father, I ask now by your spirit that you would reveal yourself to this church family. That we would see more and more of you in one another as Jesus acts and moves and in our study of scripture in looking into the gospels to see Jesus in all of your fullness, working in him. We give our hearts to you and and our minds to you and ask that you would guide us today and and over these next few months as we look into this this picture of God as seen in Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Friends, would you stand and sing with us?